Hello there and welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Ed Draper here, sports broadcaster in the UK. I hope you are well, hope you're enjoying if you're in England in the UK that sort of tail end of summer sunshine been beautiful week a little chilly in the mornings but then kind of opening up great days and the sun's just about to wind its way around into my eyes to record this in the spare room slash home office a big thank you to you for listening and to the sponsors Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations reach Jason Briggs and his team through Bang Olufsen, Cheltenham, social media, Twitter, Instagram. No doubt they've got a Facebook page as well. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook these days. I'm uh, upwardly mobile. Well, I don't know. Just haven't got the time. Um, but yeah, Jason and his team, through that company, Serene AV, not just Bang Olufsen equipment, which is uh, advertised and promoted in their store in the courtyard in Montpellier in Cheltenham, not far from where I'm recording this podcast. Uh, but through Serene AV, they can also offer bespoke sort of solutions, uh, home cinemas, that kind of stuff with different brands. So they've got all bases covered there. Uh, big thank you to Cytoplan for their support of the podcast, cytoplan.co.uk. I've just dropped my little girl off at school. My wife's been away for a couple of days, which I think was mildly traumatic at the start for for my daughter. But she's uh, we've had a great time. And I've just noticed, obviously, at school there's a anxiety around coronavirus, but obviously those seasonal sniffles that complicate things logistically coming in, the coughs, the colds, just because, you know, it's hard to determine, particularly in young kids who will get mild symptoms by and large with coronavirus, what it is and um, trying to determine that. So in terms of staving off the sort of regular stuff, we're, we're taking our supplements through cytoplan.co.uk, giving the kids Immunovite to our children. Uh, Immunovite spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-V-Y-T-E. And I've been taking supplements in for about 20 years now from Cytoplan, food-based supplements. My dad's consulted for them. He's a GP, general practitioner, doctor, and a nutritionist. And uh, he sort of definitely advocates them. He's a big uh, believer in the importance of supplementing with trace elements like selenium and zinc. And this is local to the UK. I know about 15% of the listeners of the podcast come from the USA, where you'd have to check your local state soils for terms of things like selenium and zinc to see whether you, you kind of deplete in that because there is more selenium in US soil generally, but there's that will vary quite a lot because that's a huge land mass. But in the UK, overcrop rotation, mass industrial farming for my father has depleted that. And we're also taking in less calories, even though we're kind of bigger people because we're sedentary. We're taking in less calories, so maybe not getting all the trace elements we need for cellular immunity, which is, is relevant at the moment as well. And get out and enjoy that sunshine for the, the vitamin D or the vitamin D, uh, you Americans would, would say, of course. Um, but thank you for cytoplan.co.uk. A 10% discount if you go to their website, cytoplan.co.uk. And Draper10 is the discount code, my last name, D R A P E R all capital letters, and then 10. Right on to the podcast. Guest is a fine man, Tris Dixon, former editor of Boxing News, fine boxing author, one of my favorite sports books is The Road to Nowhere. He goes back across America. Uh, he's an English guy, but he interviews some of the, the heroes of yesteryear, the 50s, the 60s, and this was around the turn of the century. He did this, I think, 2002 time, um, but sort of lays bare the sort of impact of the sport upon them, upon those heroes and their faculties and um, their lucidity. Uh, and it's sort of, I guess, a double-edged sword for all of us who, who embrace boxing. But Tris is, um, just reflects on the return of boxing in the UK in particular, the shows we've had and different promoters putting it on, but also the un-told and invisible truth of, of some of the smaller hall shows struggling because there isn't financial uh, means to do so and the um the, the elite whether they can uh 
be active at the moment if they want to sort of recoup the kind of money they usually get when they fight. So, yeah, complicated stuff. We also reflect on the loss of the former undisputed middleweight champion from Crawley in the south of England, Alan Minter, who lost that title to marvellous Marvin Hagler. Uh, Olympian as well, Olympic bronze medalist in 72. So talk about that with Tris and also the importance of structure and sleep. Big one for us because both of us uh, kind of put sleep on the sidelines when we were coming through as young journalists trying to get as much experience and now we're kind of both cognizant of its importance going back to that cognitive faculties, particularly as we get older. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Good guy, Tris Dixon. Check out his uh, podcast as well, Boxing Life Stories. I'll be back at the end to wrap up, but here it is. Hello, Tris. Ed, how are you doing? I'm very well. Two minutes early. We're, we're, ahead, we're ahead today. We're making good <laughs> progress. <laughs> how are you doing? You good? Are you still recording this time, mate? <laughs> I know, yeah. We are. Well, I think last time we went over an hour, which is, the again, the wonders of modern technology in 2020. And the app conflated our, uh, our conversation. So we were constantly speaking over each other, which we'd never do as professionals. So that's uh, hopefully we're, we're, we're on track now. But have you, have you been up and training this morning? Or what have you been up to? Yeah, I've been up and trained. I'm just having a coffee. Um, been looking forward to chatting to you. But yeah, I've just done a 6K bike, 2K row and a mile wow. run. Wow, that is impressive. Very impressive. I feel very um, envious, although I am on my own because my wife's gone to Cornwall for a couple of nights with one of her best friends for uh, her birthday. And I've, I've been sole uh parent at home with my daughter who's five so I feel like I've done all that stuff even though I was uh she was she, she got into bed with me and kicked, kicked nine sort of nine bells out of me in the night and then um I've been trying to sort of motivate her to get up ready for school and make breakfast and all that kind of stuff so I've got tremendous respect for my wife I wish I'd I think going out running would have probably been easier than uh than trying to do that so it's um I, I've got I've got newfound yeah. respect for for, for mums and, and and dads who, who did a lead the lead caring role um so yeah, not an easy gig. No, sure. no, definitely not. It's uh, it's full on. But great, to, great to speech. I've just been actually reading the the Alan Minter piece you wrote as well. So I suppose it's a natural place to start. Um, it's a name that's sort of reverberated down, hasn't it? And I think I was listening to uh, Steve Bunce and Mike Costello's podcast, and just about not really appreciating in that era how many people would have would have seen Minter fight on terrestrial TV. And I suppose that's sort of why the the name echoes down not only being a world champion but because of that era wasn't it those those guys who were famous then ultimately still sort of are talked about today yeah i mean the very definition of household name mm. really. um you know and exactly back you know the literal definition really of of how these guys got into the houses um because obviously there was stuff like superstars and and other tv things because these guys weren't just famous for for the boxing, but because they were celebrities, they were ever everywhere else as well, be it in in the newspapers or, and obviously when we when we revert to talking about TV back then, we're looking at three mm. channels. Yeah, um, and so we, we're looking at many many millions of eyeballs on 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 these fights and fighters, learning about them and their personalities and so forth. And obviously, Minter, you know, by the time we get round to the Hagler fight, which is near the end of his journey, his boxing journey in 1980. He's been in the public eye for eight years, mm. you know, having won bronze at the Olympics in '72. So there's a lot of a lot of publicity and a lot of um, a lot of life in the public eye. And I think referring to that Bunsen Costello podcast you talked about, I think Simon Block said on there that he was really Crawley's first ever celebrity. Yes. So there's a so there's a different level of fame there, you know, local and national. Yeah. Yeah, that was right. It was a great email in from Simon actually to to Bunsen Costello talking about 
the fact that he was a sort of um, a talismanic sort of celebrity for Crawley, which was relatively a new town, even though it sort of pre-existed, um, I guess, the 60s expansion, but it came almost like Milton Keynes in terms of being a new town and, and growing. And he, the, the sort of campaign, I think, or Simon was trying to initiate a campaign to get a statue for Alan. And it, it's interesting that that, 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 no, that emphasis of fame and attention, isn't there? Because modern boxers, you know, encourage... I guess naturally it's gone to social media and we talk about they've got a bigger platform now that they can communicate with fans. But that sort of um, that focus and that distil- that distilling of attention in those days was so clear in the terrestrial TV, wasn't it? I was talking to my brother actually yesterday who's a singer-songwriter about that. He's had millions of listens online to his music, but it's difficult to turn that into to revenue. But also just how, mu- how much more difficult it is to command attention now, whereas in those days, if you were able to to get through the gatekeepers there was such a such a huge audience you can see why boxers now it's a longer haul isn't it and sometimes we see boxers achieve that fame maybe at a point when their physical skills have, have maybe peaked I don't, is that fair yeah i think that's fair but also you know when you look at the status of boxing you know his fights with kevin Min- uh, kevin finnegan back in the day british title fights they were huge mm. events in the uk and obviously british title fights really very rarely get that kind of national yeah. attention these maybe days. joshua dillian so, one maybe was the last one do you think yeah yeah quite possibly and you know you're looking at what maybe one in five years maybe something mm. like that um and even then i think you know you're looking at levels because i think you know correct me if i'm wrong but that was likely pay-per-view and if it wasn't yeah it was probably the last of the last one of joshua's that wasn't although i got a feeling it probably was and 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 you know we're comparing Apples and oranges, really, because Minter Finnegan, you know, you're looking at many millions watching that on the TV. Mm. Um, and obviously you're looking at very, very different amounts in, in audiences um, because, you know, what you're saying there is, is exactly right. It's people are competing for, for airspace and airtime. Um, but there's so many platforms and so many ways of getting that attention that it's, you know, it's, it's almost it, there's got to be something more, something smarter to it than throwing stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm. But it's kind of along that, along those lines is no one really knows what's going to go viral and what's going to stick. And certainly for the right reasons anyway. Yeah. In, t- in terms of boxing, commanding a sort of national and international attention. I've watched a few documentaries, the great PBS America one on Jack Johnson, the first uh, black African-American heavyweight champion. And I've watched a George Foreman one and you just get a sense of a hundred years plus with, with Johnson, but even more recently, recently 56 years the place that boxing had internationally in terms of status and particularly the heavyweights in terms of uh, renown as a kind of lingua franca of sport across the world and it's interesting how how that's changed with, with Minter as well and I wanted to talk we'll, we'll talk a little bit in a second about uh, Joe Joyce against Dubois uh, kind of echoes of, of, of uh, Joshua against Dillian White in terms of a really high profile domestic fight with the, the European strap on the line as well which whether that's going to happen in the pandemic era because what Frank Warren said, but with with Minter, obviously he's um, he's he, he's sort of I guess notorious for the statement about Marvin Hagler not wanting to lose to a black guy. And I just wondered whether you reflect on that and the, the society we live in in terms of digital society, because we have we have been sort of privy to this cancel culture now and, and reluctant to allow people to make mistakes and, and, and sort of forgive them. And I understand clearly people will say, well, look, the era we're in with George Floyd, you know, we can't forgive that kind of behaviour, but. There is a sense that that Minter wasn't just defined by that, was he? He was a he was a a, a lot more rounded and, I suppose, um, virtuous man than that would suggest. Yeah, well, I mean that 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 remark certainly came back to haunt him because we're talking about it now, forty years on. Mm. Um, 
and and in many ways that that did define him and i'm not saying that's right or wrong but you know that's certainly right up there in terms of everything he's remembered for in terms of you know when people think about minter they think about the hagra fight they think about the riots they think about those comments before and they think about obviously him getting cut and, and busted up and those things are at the forefront of, of your mind and and rightly or wrongly that's the way it is and I mean, Hopkins made similar comments before the Kawasaki fight, didn't he? Mm. But it's, it's, it's. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really tough one. This, and I was just listening to the Joe Rogan podcast with Edward Snowden. Yeah, that's a great podcast, and, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really interesting one. And they're talking about, um, uh, you know, people being um, hauled over the coals for stuff they've said years previously, um, and on on social media and all the rest of it, and and it's a really difficult one because people do change mm. and people's attitudes, beliefs and values change as you go along and people do adopt different um, outlooks. Mm. Um, so it, it's, it's a really tough one. Obviously, you know, th- there was no right or there was no right time to say what Minter said, you know, it was, it was wrong and we've seen that, but did he regret it every day for the rest of his life? There's a fair chance he might have. Done. Mm. And, and, and it's certainly not something he might have held true to into his dying day a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, therefore, should he be judged on that? I think it's, it's unfair. But, you know, when I put a link up to my boxing scene piece that you referred to earlier, um, Ashley Theophane commented almost straight away saying, I just remember what he said again about the Hagra fight. Mm. And, and that's it. That's cut and dry. And that, that's, that's all that some people will, will remember. Yeah. Um, I think it's tough. I mean, I, I've sort of got mixed views on that, really. I think, you know, we've seen people say stuff and, and, and people have gone through people's old tweets purposefully trying to find inflammatory stuff and they've done it. But all, all you can do is, you know, I've educated my kids, I'd like to think, to not do that. And I've I've told them and used examples of things that come back to haunt people years later on. Yes. And so I've gone through it with, with my children to say, don't do this and don't put anything online that you wouldn't say to anyone, you know, face to face. And, and uh, hopefully that will ring true with them through the years. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'm sort of answering the question in a roundabout way, really, but um, I think that's the, that's the key thing. And it's tough, isn't it? Mm. When someone says something that is, you know, racist and that is a racist comment, you can't really, it's, it's not a forgivable comment. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, has was it meant that way? Was it meant to be racist? Um, and was it and was it uh, something that he clung on to and a belief he hung on to through the next four decades? You know, I can't yeah. answer that. It's also Tris as well. You're saying there about how you're coaching your parent, your children, sorry, coaching your parents, but um, maybe we sometimes try to coach our parents a bit. But, it, uh, we, we, you know, we're fortunate and we have to be honest that, that we are products to a certain extent of the environments and the values and the ideas and the, and the behaviours that we witness as a child. And then it's up to us to grow beyond that as we become adults. But if you're lucky enough to have parents who are, who are enlightened and, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in the West Indies with predominantly black children in my, in my first school, my primary school. So it, for me, it was never a concept of uh, a different or a distinction whereas I think people who come from different backgrounds where maybe people did look to, to find difference to to try and sort of um, disparage other groups based on something ridiculous and superficial as skin color then I think but it's clearly had such huge roots and and caused so much pain down the years I, I, I sort of tend to sort of forgive people in the same way that I think through boxing we, we've seen so many characters 
who are reformed partly through the sport and the people they meet, people have been in trouble with street violence, you know, causing um, hurt in their youth. I mean, George Foreman documentary is interesting about that, that he was the sort of failed hoodlum in, in his youth. And um, he, he came through that and, and grew to being such a sort of gregarious, loving character that we all know with the Foreman grill. So I think it's, it's not to be trite, but it, there is potential for, for growth. You, you must see that. That's one of the, I guess, is that one of the, the appealing aspects of the sport to you? Yeah, it is. And Foreman's a great example. You know, he's, he's literally one extreme to the other. But he goes to show that, um, you know, in time, and this is sort of in reference to the Minter thing as well, in time, people can change. You know, I've got no doubt that George was a mean and horrible bastard back in the day. Mm. Um, I've, I'm, I'm convinced of it. You know, he hung around with Sonny Liston. He, he wanted to be hard. And whether he was playing the part or not, he probably wasn't the nicest chap to be around. Mm. Um, however, um, obviously nowadays, and I've done a podcast with him recently, he's, he's an absolute joy to spend time with. Yeah. And it just goes to show that people do soften with time and they do learn a little bit more about other people, other religions, other cultures, and, and their attitudes, beliefs, and values can change. Yeah. And, and boxing is quite redeeming in that respect, in the sense that if you go to a boxing gym, there aren't many barriers in there. You know, I've, I've been welcomed in every boxing gym that I've ever been to, regardless of whether it's been in a, in a ghetto or in a shopping center or, or whatever. Um, there's this sort of universal acceptance that mm. we're all in the sport together. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, that's true. The evolution of even people like Muhammad Ali from a, um, you know, obviously experienced horrific racism in his youth and then was a separatist in lots of ways, but then became very inclusive and known as a unifying force across the world and a, a figure of love. So that's a, a fantastic journey as well. I know it is easy for white guys who have not had discrimination against them per se to, to riff on these topics, but I think that, that possibility for redemption is definitely open there. And we see it all the time in, in sport. And I think that's one of the reasons why sports fascinated me, that, that metaphor for life as well. And interesting on your podcast that I'm looking forward to listening to the, the Nicky Piper one, but I was um, enthralled with the Ed Robinson one, actually. I spoke to Ed afterwards. And you were saying about him on the podcast being uh, reluctant. And he's certainly someone that doesn't want the limelight, despite having worked in the, in the front and centre of boxing media for a long time. Um, yeah. But it was fascinating to hear, to hear your parallels because he's someone that um, I've, I think, consciously connected you to because uh, you came through in a, a similar, similar time. You're younger than him a little bit, but it, in terms of having tried the sport, having that visceral understanding of it and that appreciation of boxers through that, and uh, did you, do you feel a sort of kindred spirit with Ed? Yeah, and obviously, you know, you mentioned being, being in a similar place at a similar time, really. Um, you know, we've crossed paths many times over the years, over here and over in the USA and covering fights. So um, we've sort of known the same people, um, and, and being on the same same sort of ambitious journey because I think both and Ed both Ed and myself are probably quite ambitious and I think we're quite similar in the sense that we don't naturally look for the limelight that's not something that we're either of us are particularly after mm. um, you know I'm quite a shy and introverted guy and therefore you know I think and I think you can probably see with with Ed and I when it comes to presenting on tv like we're not naturals we're not showmen or, or anything like that it doesn't it's a very very hard mm. job for us mm. because you know staring into the camera and acting is not like a which is in essence what it is it's a very hard skill to have 
that's why I've got an enormous respect for, for you and what you do mm, is because I've, tr- I've tried it and it's bloody, you, bloody hard. But you know what's because... funny? Ed struck on a great point there because it's about situation specific sort of anxiety and what fear, fears you have in life because my wife is, is very much introverted and I had fear of public speaking stuff as a kid naturally but then when I found an enjoyment in it and then realising that I enjoyed being on, sort of doing things on video at college and stuff and actually not in a vainglorious way, but sort of in that sort of, in a way, similar way to performing in, in sport, that visceral kind of like, I mean, I mean, in the moment, that feeling of being present. And, um, but I say to my wife, like, because I'm completely cack handed at home, she'll be like, oh, put this, and it's like, I get ang- anxious about silly things that other people don't like domestic chores and, and, and putting up shelves and things like that, which is ridiculous, I know. But I think people, <laughs> This doesn't say, but people have different things that they're good at. And Ed yeah, struggled on that. And Ed, Ed said about how it is how you feel. And I've seen people on TV who love it. I think Richard and Judy is a prime example. You've got polar opposites where Richard seems to enjoy it, but Judy was on there for ages, but very anxious, shaking constantly. And you think, is that good for you to, to do something that, you, that there is something that's genetic about it, I think. Well, I mean, I said to Ed on that podcast, you know, do you ever think when you're before you're about to go live and you're looking down the camera, do you ever think, you know, I've fought in the ring, like I've been through the nerves and it's way worse because someone's coming to hit me. Yeah. Like here, all I've got to do yeah. is look down a camera yeah. and, you know, remember to smile so I don't look quite so wooden. Yeah. And and say a few words. But, you know, you could tell yourself that. Yeah, I thought it was really hard. It was impossible. And you think, you know, this is going to be a piece of cake. And then when they say three two one you're like oh shit <laughs> but it's a bit i'm sure it's like fighting because ed said in a sense that the part of the problem with when you're early in your career and he said that he, you can train all you want but the exhausting and sort of adrenalized effect of when you when the sort of lights are on you're not used to that experience i think there is an element of of repetition i've been lucky at different places in my career perhaps to not have high profile uh jobs but things that have got, given me a lot of experience of being on camera and getting used to being able to control those those aspects of it and finding that optimum arousal i think we used to call it in sports science was that point of you know where you can perform where you're not sleepy but you're not also kind of over aroused and, and stressed out which you see in fighters don't you some fighters seem exhausted within the ring yeah i mean uh, you know pre-fight nerves do affect everyone and obviously there is some sort of crossover there into into presenting the thing is obviously when you're presenting you know if you've got those nerves and your legs are going you're generally behind a desk or the, <laughs> yeah. or the legs are out of shot yeah i remember going back to george foreman he said i was really pleased in the first fight with joe frazier that frazier was looking into my eyes because then he wouldn't have seen my <laughs> knees knocking together it's a great quote, um, isn't it? yeah which which given that he went then went out and bounced frazier around like a, a a beach ball then you wouldn't have imagined but he said he was terrified so yeah it's interesting it affects everyone differently i mean the presenting thing i still can't really get my head around um it's it it was so it was so challenging and i'd done a lot of punditry work and i'd been a guest on a lot of tv shows mm. and and sort of seemed to relatively take that on my in my stride although people might say otherwise no, you but did, when yeah. it came to presenting i couldn't believe how different it was mm. um and and there's no way of explaining it you know you sat in a room with five or six people around you and you know sometimes maybe sometimes more but you know the fact that you can't mess up you can't um and ah, you you need to get your lines in you know you, you need to get your income in and out you know your your sign outs and you you your content nailed in between mm. there's no margin for error and people don't really see that and they think oh you can just do it again but then if you miss it two or three times it then gets in your head <laughs> and all the rest of it and it's just it's a very very challenging thing and, and to be honest that's one of the things that i did like about it i did like the fact that you know i've written about the sport i've broadcasted about the sport i've done the tv stuff and i've done the punditry mm. 
I did like the fact that at 40, I was actually being challenged by the same sport yeah. just by doing something else. And did you, did you have a sort of director and a, and a, and a DA counting down time links and stuff? like? Because that's the thing is splintered attention is that people don't necessarily realise you're trying to listen to a guest, but you've also got two or three voices in your ear sometimes as well. Um, yeah, well, it was all very different, actually, because I was on location with, with BT, it was all very different. And really, you know, I was, I was, I was doing the no filter stuff and I was looking at other presenters trying to learn from everyone. I was like, everyone else had cue cards or iPads mm. or something to refer to. And I was completely naked. I had nothing. <laughs> I had a clip mic, so I wasn't even holding a microphone. Wow. And I was just stood there and I didn't, wasn't, you know, I didn't have any notes. I didn't have an iPad. I didn't have a clipboard or anything else that everyone else seemed to have. Yeah. And I really felt that the use of props might have helped me out. Mm. Um, and as it turned out, every time the, the camera went to me and I was exposed, it was just it was just an incredibly challenging experience, yeah. really. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a real nature-nurture debate as well in, in lots of aspects in life. Because I think there is a genetic aspect to it. But then there's just drilling the hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says, the 10,000 hours. That I know that because I started, I did my master's in journalism in the States and we had a, a TV station there and I could go down for hours and practice on autocue. And then when I came to Sky, I was doing online low profile stuff, but with autocue and, and, and kind of drilling that. So that was that became sort of second nature to read autocue and, and doing six years at Sky Sports News, probably often up to 16 between 16 and 20 hours live broadcasting a week, you then you just, so much, you just yeah. realize you're getting up to that 10,000 hour mark. And then you think, well, you look at, you also look at like a, a Gary Lineker and you look at how much he's made because obviously it's been in the limelight this week mm. and you think, well, you know, he does, he, he, the amount of people that say I could do that job, <laughs> it's because he makes it look so easy. He looks relaxed. Yeah. Very relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe it wasn't like that at the time at the start, but he's like that now. And like you said, nature, nurture, he's been doing it for years and years and years now. And so he looks perfectly at ease. And I, I'm sure that anyone who does it will get there in the end, but it does take a, a long period of time. Like you said, a lot, a lot of practice. And you want to enjoy it for yourself. Don't you, you want to find things in life that not only require the practice, but the, there's a seed of passion because that passion then takes you through. So I think if you don't necessarily enjoy that aspect, uh, like any sport that you take up, but you have to take up the sport that just for whatever reason, subjectively appeals to, to you, I think. And, and hopefully that combines with your talents <laughs> and, yeah, and, and then you go on. Um, but yeah, that was good with Ed. And one thing that struck me with Ed Romson actually was talking about was, um, and we something that we talked about in a conversation we had in the spring when the, the early stages of the lockdown was our experience of, of having to sort of prove ourselves to gatekeepers through free work experience and, and, and years of, of perhaps putting ourselves out to, to sacrifice to get opportunities in the media and you were, i think you know we were talking about maybe seeing it is different now that people can rock up to press conferences with with uh, microphones but ed said a really good thing actually that he said not all of those people will garner big audiences or make a living out of it which made me think perhaps they're they haven't got the gatekeepers stopping them but at the same time they're still having to put the work in by and large i know there can be overnight sort of flukes of people getting big followings online but by and large if you start a boxing interview account on YouTube, you've got to put the hours in like, I suppose I feel TV have. Yeah, I, I do agree with that, but also we're in an era where it's that much easier to get a break by being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, because you can put something out so quickly, you know, if you were in the right place at the right time, 25 years ago, you'd still have to wait and work around a deadline of a newspaper. Mm. Uh, or a TV or, or a magazine would be another another week, yeah, potentially. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you know, I was part of that transition really because we broke the news of Anthony Joshua turning pro at Boxing News, and we wrote that. I think that story. We I did the story, an interview of Eddie Hearn and Joshua on the Monday, 
to come out on the Thursday. And so we came out on the Thursday morning and our subscribers would have got all the news um, and, and, and anyone buying box news would have got all the news. And the press conference was about midday, I think that day. And so it was really sort of, I think one of the, that was probably one of the last big boxing stories that was probably safe for print. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Just that, that concept of it. But the fact that we would, yeah, we, we would wait till the morning, wouldn't we? If you, and if you went to school or work early in the morning, you wouldn't often read the paper till lunchtime or the afternoon or, or something like that. So, you know, just thinking about the, uh, the information and the, I guess the excitement that a journalist would have releasing that, that must've been something you had in the early stages of your career when you knew it was going to come out you had that anticipation, whereas now it's, thrown out quickly on social media you don't have that build-up yeah it was great i mean i remember covering some court cases when i was at the hampshire chronicle and i was there thinking wow this is going to be big and i remember covering one particular court case um where there was someone who drove a car at a police officer and that was on the and they played the cctv footage in court wow. and uh and i managed to get the footage and um you know through all the correct channels and we managed to put the footage on a website and that story went um, that story went national. It was on Good Morning Britain and everything else. And there is a bit of a buzz when you break these sort of stories. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, good, well, good for you. And that's something that Ed said as well was about how much he enjoys the sort of production role and the orchestrating of things. And that's again resonated with me about knowing what you're into and what you're good at. And because that would terrify me, all the WhatsApp messages you said he had and things, I would just I think my brain would my brain would blow up with the sort of I guess the the pressure because you're trying to orchestrate everyone else and hoping that they don't mess up. It. He he seems to thrive on that intensity and that kind of um splintered focus i think he's probably on a treadmill that he can't necessarily get off and that's all it that's what he does and what he knows mm. um i think when you're in it when you're in that eye of the storm that's just life yeah and and that's his that's his role and he probably doesn't stop too much to think about it because you don't get the time um you know, I, that was a similar position to where i was at boxing news in terms of all the messages and emails that would just flood in and there's no, you know, there's literally no filter on anything. And you've got to, you know, you want to try and give everyone your attention. But at the same time, you know, a weekly magazine with a staff of four or five putting out the amount of content that we were putting out, you just couldn't respond how, to everyone or get back to everyone. How did you structure that email stuff? Did you, did you have certain times of day when you'd reply to them? Did you have a sort because you're very, um, I guess, pre-planned and, and structured in how you approach your, your physical exercise. Were you like that with, with the email and, and the sort of correspondence? No, um, I, it's taken me um it's taken me probably 12 years since there to try and get any kind of that that kind of order i think if i could do it again i would do it differently but no back then i i lived the job and i was 24 7 and i was sleeping with my phone by my bed and checking mm. emails and you know up at you know i, I was I, I thought i was thriving on four hours sleep at the time <laughs> Uh, and that that was it that and, and you know that that job would have put me in an early grave i've got no doubt yeah. about whatsoever um and uh you know the stress and the, the 24 7 of it all and you know when you go when you go to bed obviously everything happening in america and everyone's messaging from america and so forth and contributors and even and through weekends when obviously people would think it's a downtime you've got reports coming in from around the world at all different times and stuff that you want to edit so you're not too far behind when you start back at in the office on monday um it was and then then obviously you've got deadline on tuesday and then it all starts again on wednesday and you want to get as far ahead of the game before the weekend comes yeah it was it was relentless and i wish i had some kind of priority structure back then but no i didn't yeah and so it was just do everything as i as fast as i could as quick as i could and i was a terrible one for 
not delegating and I've learned the importance of delegating subsequently but I wish I'd, I'd I'd known a little bit more about it then yeah that perception of the perception versus reality is fascinating about productivity in particular and thinking that if you're on 24 7 you're actually getting a lot done but maybe the, the quality isn't there maybe even the quantity isn't isn't there an output my, my wife's often told me about things that when I was working split shifts in the early stages of my career she'd be like oh yeah we really chilled out then and we you remember doing this and doing that and I was like I can't remember any of it I was just drifting through because I was yeah. Uh, yeah. getting up at four and, and going to bed at 11 and things like that they're, they're working in different places so it's it's, it's interesting and then, then you realize actually when you start to sort of get a structure and a rest that you think oh wow my brain's actually on form now like your body would be and you know so much so so much and ev- ev- everything's changed like i now track my sleep and you know i i got up and trained really early yesterday with a friend at 5 a.m wow and so i made myself nap in the day and you know that's that that's to make me more productive so mm. that i can take a, take 35 minutes out and therefore get more out of the day overall and some people might think oh napping in the day is lazy but it just injects that much more life into my work before and afterwards knowing that i've got it coming up and knowing that i'm sort of out the other side of it as well yeah really refreshing that isn't it just a short sharp nap i've relied on that often you know after early shifts because it it's not enough to get into a deep sleep but it just clears your brain yeah exactly that exactly it just resets it's like mm. a quick reset button and uh, and yeah, and uh, you know the the thing is, well, with tracking sleep, obviously you do become aware of when you are at a deficit and when you're not. Mm. And so, if you're at a deficit, then you do try. You know, I want to try and claw it back, and not just to, to perform better on the day, but obviously, and I think we've talked about this before. But the long held risks of not getting enough sleep in links with Alzheimer's, dementia, and, and Parkinson's, and so forth. You know, it's all stuff that I'm I'm going to actively try and avoid as best as possible. Mm. And if that means trying to get eight hours sleep in a day by in one way shape or form then i'm going to try and get it i mean i've got enough catching up to do because for 15 or 20 years i i, I thrive thought i was thriving on very little sleep at all yeah i can echo a lot of that and i think the, the, the tension i have there with the documentation of the sleep is that it might become counterproductive for me i've got a very simple casio retro casio watch <laughs> because I, I try to not get obsessed with with documenting it and worrying about it and sort of checking it in the middle of the night to see how much i've slept and things like that was that ever a concern for you because you're clearly a, a rigorous guy that you would sort of fixate on it to the point of it being detrimental no, no do you know what i've been just been finished i've just finished reading this book called irresistible and it's about um addiction to technology and modern technology and phones and everything mm. else uh and games online shopping online gaming um just just general tech and i was actually really re- positively reinforced by a lot of the stuff that i read in there um and it was a really, it was a really interesting read, but a lot of the, a lot of the bad habits they set, they talked about, I haven't fallen into, or I know enough, or I've kind of started to implement things to, to not fall into the traps of technology. So, you know, I think I mentioned before, I stopped sleeping with my phone by my bed, yeah. um, bought a cheap alarm clock so that there's no excuse saying, oh, well, I use my alarm on it and mm. all the rest of it. Um, It's interesting now because now I'm trying to educate the kids about this as well because they want to sleep with their devices. Mm. And one of the things that I was reading about was, um, you know, your body, when you go to sleep, it wants darkness and dark colors. So obviously dark reds and oranges, which you associate with sunset. Like a cave. would Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And obviously if you're and when you wake up, you know, you see blue skies. That's the theory. And so obviously if your kids are going to bed and they're looking into a blue screen, their body's saying we're going to bed, but their head's actually saying, oh, it's time to wake up. You've got <laughs> yeah. A blue screen. yeah. So it's some really it's interesting conflict. stuff. But, but I'm, 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 quite, I'm 
I'm very aware of how much time phones and devices take up. Like I do monitor my stuff, but at the same time, I'm not becoming a slave to it. Mm. How, how, um, how do you handle your social media then? Because you are convers- and you obviously got your own projects that you're promoting on there, which is not promoting, but just sharing, I think is the best, sure. better way of putting it. How do you monitor that, that you're not, because the, the difficult thing is that dopamine rush of going back and checking if someone's commented or liked or that kind of stuff, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the book, although I've been aware of different things. um, I've actually deleted the Twitter app now and I've deleted the Facebook app. Um, I've kept my accounts, but I've deleted them. And what I'll do is when I need to post something, I'll jump on there and post something and then just come out of it. And reply as and when if you notice someone's message you. It's almost like you would do a sort of email in the old days. Yes, but as you know, I've also moved some of my stuff onto Patreon now and the people there are subscribers. And so therefore, like I actually owe them a response and I, you know, cause they're, they're yeah. subscribing to my output. And so I feel like I'm spending more time over on Patreon, not too much, but more time, but, but because those people are helping move my products forwards yeah. um, and they are helping me in the grand scheme of things. Like I, I feel like that's part, that's part of a new job, but I just need to compartmentalize the time that I spend there. Yeah. But yeah, it, I deleted the Facebook app. Uh, I, I'm using Instagram as, uh, and I, I started TikTok with my daughter from lockdown. <laughs> Did you? And we were, we were sort of doing some bits on there, but I've deleted that as well because you don't get anything back from this. And no. also like, are you, wor- are you worried about the China thing as well that they're monitoring us or is that secondary? Concern? No, not really because I don't really do anything. You know, if anyone <laughs> wants to monitor my stuff, they're more than welcome the to ch- check it out. China will be intimidated by your, uh, your imposing physique. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't do anything like that a regular guy wouldn't do. So, no. I mean, you know, it's a good point. Check, check away. So it's fine. Um, not plotting any, anything sinister <laughs> or anything else. So, um, but no, so yeah, it's interesting to talk about that addictions. And also I think, you know, I'm trying to limit the amount I go back and forth with people on Twitter because, you know, you don't even know if some of these people are real. No. And, you know, that you don't owe these people anything. And sometimes, you know, the interactions really stress you out. Sometimes people are really, really unkind and really horrible. Mm. And it can affect your day. And you don't know these people. They might just be kids. Yeah. They could well, be anything. What I've realized as well is you get sort of sometimes secondhand references from people on social media. You're not sure who these people are. And I, th- I actually recorded a podcast that recently they had to take down because someone... I realized were actually had been imprisoned for a serious crime. And I hadn't realized before because I'd been referred to this person, but then the person who referred them said, Oh no, sorry, I gave you the wrong contact for the wrong email. And it's like, what? This is, you know, it's just like, it, it, it really scolded me and thought I'm spending time a lot directing messages to people and, and people saying, Oh, can you follow me? And you think, well, I, I need to focus my attention on, on, on people who I sort of genuinely know are real and, and productive. And um, cause there, yeah. is, cause there is an aspect of people, you know, fronting up as something, you know, in terms of um, being a productive person, but they're not necessarily uh, that that productive or successful in what, as they're claiming to be. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, of course. And I, I think that's the thing, you know, I was spending a lot of time on Twitter, you know, and whether I was going back and forth or responding to people, like, I just don't know these people. Like, and so if I'm sat around with my kids, for example, around the house, mm. and I'm not talking to them, but I'm in there talking to strangers, that's just weird. Yeah. And you're trying to set an example for the kids, aren't you? Because my daughter is very vigilant with me. She's like, put your phone down, daddy, and, you know, things like that. And I think, well, I don't want to teach her that that's the, the way to be so that when she's in yeah. that position. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. So I've just been away with the kids and we went to we went to Greece for a week. Uh, we didn't have to quarantine or anything, but it was we had a, a good break. We had a couple of days 
where we were off our phones entirely. And mm. funny enough, I said to the kids, oh, what was the highlight of the, the holiday as you do? when you're a dad seeking, <laughs> seeking approval. And, um, and they said, they, they pinpointed a day. And I'm like, how ironic that we didn't have our phones that day from 7am until 10pm. Yes. Yeah. Like, that was your best day because you went out and you did stuff. Lived in the moment. Yeah. You made yourself busy and you were productive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm really trying not to be a slave to my device. Um, you know, I do, mo- I monitor my workouts on it, but it's, I monitor my sleep on it. Uh, I do have social media interactions, but the idea is for me to use it, not for it mm. to use me. Yeah. And it, it's clever. This, I mean, the book, did it go into the sort of like the psychological manipulation in terms of dopamine and sort of oxytocin or whatever it produces to, to lock us in? Yeah, it's great. And, the, you know, there's even there was even a chapter on what on binge watching on Netflix. And it's something that my, my partner and I, we don't binge loads of stuff, but we have to, we just watched Cobra Kai, actually. I'm not sure if you've seen that. But no. Great. great uh, it's a great little trashy series, if I can say <laughs> that. But it's laced with nostalgia because it's got all the Karate Kid originals. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've seen so, that. Advertised, so yeah. It is. It's really it's really easy to watch. But we've started, we and we'd started doing this before, and that, and and this guy um, talking about this in Irresistible, he's talking about how when you when you're binging a series, if you're binging it, don't watch to the end of the first one because you you know because you'll watch the cliffhanger and then you'll be wondering what to do. Yeah. So he's basically saying watch from halfway in an episode and then come out when it starts to settle down halfway through the next episode. Yeah. So that you're not left on that cliffhanger. And you're not left wanting more and more and sort of giving yourself that rush of where you need to see the start of the next one. It's a good clue. Yeah, I've almost given up on Netflix sometimes because the trailers are so long now. I'm, getting, I'm a bit of a granddad, but you almost see the whole plot. The trailers are so yeah, long. Yeah. Like the films especially, you sort of think, oh, I don't need to watch that film now because I've kind of I've watched yeah. the, uh, the lengthy trailer. It's interesting that tension for, for boxers because Anthony Farrell was on here and he does a lot on Twitter with his um, CBD oil, which he firmly believes in as well as having it as a business interest. And he said sure. to me, look, there's loads of time being a boxer. So I've got that time to be on a Twitter after I've done my physical training. But there is an energy deficit there, potentially, I suppose, to, for, for boxers and fighters to be aware of needing to separate themselves and, and truly rest. Well, it's one of those things. I mean, it's very difficult because, you know, say I've got a book coming out next March, obviously damaged this, this head injury book. Yeah. Like feasibly, obviously, I, I have a, um, I have a, a, in inverted commas, audience that I need to sell the book to. Yeah. So obviously I need to interact with people but it's important for my own state of mind and welfare that I interact on my terms mm. and, and on my, and on my schedule and my timetable. Um, and so, you know, I kind of get, get what Anthony's saying, especially where he needs to, or wants to push CBD and, and the other stuff that he wants to do. But I think, you know, there is, there is such a thing in your life as too much and dedicating too much time to, to these different pursuits um, and to different social media things, because it all depends on what you get out of it. You know, when mm. you look at, you know, if you look at uh, a, a famous YouTuber, for instance, if he spends 20 hours a day doing YouTube stuff, but he's making millions, <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the rub. If, you know, someone like me, who's uh, selling books, yeah. So, yeah, selling books, but maybe selling a couple of books a day, uh, you know a uh, best or whatever then is it really worth my while spending hours and hours on there mm. 
No, I think you're right. I'm probably not going to get yeah. the return. So, yeah. so why should I let it dictate so much of my time? Yeah. And it's, yeah, and it, it, you psychologically leave yourself open for negativity. I mean, I'm, one of the illuminating things has been speaking to black friends and colleagues is the abuse that they get, which has really opened my eyes to the levels of, of racism and hate still out there. But also women as well, the abuse that my colleagues get at Sky from things like that. And I think it's, you know, you realise for boxers, your psychological welfare and health is is key and your confidence and self-respect and if you're leaving yourself open to attacks because there will be people who are keyboard warriors who want to sort of put dents in you and and, and ruin your day i think that's something that they have to be cognizant of and interesting on that that topic is ed was very tactful with it and i spoke to ed actually since and and i've been something i'm aware on social media is that when you work for a company like sky sky is a, a legacy media it's a traditional media it's a big focused company whereas a lot of them the new media is is one guy or a few guys and they're not big targets for legal suits and i think the thing that ed was trying to get at was that you can't be contentious if if you're necessarily or defamatory or sensationalist when you work for an organization i think people don't always get the difference sometimes between some of the new media and the legacy media that you are a target for for legal action and consequences i think ed brought that across well yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, obviously at Boxing News, I was part of, you know, in a, in a similar position, really, in that respect, mm. certainly when it came to, to legal stuff. I think the thing is, as well, with, with Ed and what he was talking about there, what, what I th- thought interesting is, I think people, you know, if you work for Sky or a big corporation, people listen in, and I think they expect Ed to throw Sky under a bus. Yeah, yeah. And to talk about, oh, you know, it's like a prison in there, or, you know, <laughs> I can't believe they got rid of Glenn McCrory, and... I think people expect all of this sort of faux outrage because that's the world that we live in. And I think it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, when I was at Boxing News, I would never have thrown Boxing News or NewsQuest under a bus mm. because they're giving me my livelihood. They're putting food on my children's table. Yeah. And, you're, 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 and you're, you have to be partisan because that you're part of that team in a sense. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm a yes man. No. But, it, but I've also got to play the game because if I don't, then they can get in someone else who will play the game. Yeah. And it's very, you know, I was made to do things at Boxing News I didn't want to do. You know, when Fighting Fit, our fitness magazine folded, they wanted, uh, which it should never have done, but that's neither here nor there. When they when they decided to pack that up, they wanted fitness content in Boxing News and said, you're going to have four pages of fitness content in. I didn't want it in there. It wasn't the right time mm. and place. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have a choice. Then when they wanted to get rid of old timers, they said, you know, it's a dwindling audience. We, we want to get rid of that. Well, anyone who knows me knows I spent, a, a basically a career trying to launch my career speaking to old people. yes yeah so why would i want to get rid of that <laughs> yeah but ultimately these calls were made by people further up the ladder and it really hacked me off yeah but you know if i didn't do it they get rid of me get someone else in and they get rid of it well and i think at sky there's been movements when i was hosting the boxing podcast we had anthony yard in who's, who wasn't a sky fighter and we we made movements to be inclusive and because all the people who are boxing fans at sky of course they like other fighters but the the, the inherent reality is that they're you know, will do more interviews with boxers they have access to and promoters they have a relationship with. That's one of the, the realities of life. I think people sometimes think that it won't be that way. On that note, what have you what have you made of the shows coming back to us? Because I think we've spoken properly since they've been in full swing. We've had the BT Studio ones. We've had the, the Sky Matchroom ones, which I really enjoyed the vista of, of London in the backdrop. And they got pretty lucky with the weather. I know uh, Anna Woolhouse was saying it was pretty cold on, on one of the shows. But what was your what was your overall reflections on it? Yeah, well, I think they deserve the luck with what they tried and what they tried to put on, really. Um, you make your own luck. You know, it's one of those things, you, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And they were blessed with the with the weather. But, you know, it's, it's after the year we've had, it's the least we could, yeah, we could have asked The weather's for. been all right, by and large, actually, overall. So it's one of the yeah. positives. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, the, obviously the dread is that lockdown comes back and it's miserable and no one can get out. Mm. Um, but still, hopefully we'll never get to that. Yeah, I, th- I think it was a hard and fast lesson, wasn't it? I think people thought that, that, that people were desperate for boxing to come back in any way, shape or form. And I think some of the early shows, and this was in America as well, they just weren't the most attractive shows. You mm. know, I'm a hardcore boxing guy and I could have taken or left some of them. Mm. Um, and this, like I said, this is America as well. And I think, you know, when people were longing for football to come back, would you have been longing to football for football to come back if it was, with all due respect, Barry against Brentford? Yeah. Yeah, you know, maybe not. Yeah, but that's about it, probably. Yes, exactly. You know, the same way that if you know, if you were looking at a a decent British title fight, and and there were a couple of good ones on BT, you know, unless you were supporting the the fighters, you know, is that the sort of stuff that you would have stayed in for normally? Mm. Um, Probably not. And I think there were hard lessons learned there. Um, I think it's 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 tough. You know, you know, you don't want to knock anyone. Because everyone's tried so hard and busted a gut yeah. with all of the stuff that's been put in place and all the all the sanctions that the board have put in, you know, sanctions for everyone's health and well-being, obviously, in terms of cleaning the ring down after yeah. each fight and the referee going away and having showers and all the rest Cost, of it. Costs money, though, doesn't it? Not so much the referee oh, having showers. But, you know, so, so much, yeah, so much so, you know, to get the personnel in and the, and the right personnel doing the right things. And then, obviously, they've had the social distancing and all the different things they've had to implement. It's crazy. And, and I suppose what's... What we've come and maybe we'll come on to this now. Obviously, you mentioned Dubois Joyce. Is what's what's odd about what's happened with boxing is we've had this sort of middle of the range stuff come back, but obviously the really the smaller shows haven't been able to come back. No. So there's no live gates. Yeah, also, the big how many people are struggling at that bottom entrance? Sorry to interrupt, but because that's not it's not I'm not been working in the trenches on, on that side of it. But there is a lot of unknown sort of heartache, similar to sort of the low leagues of football that are really hurting at the moment. So I did a podcast, I think it was episode 98 or 99 on Boxing Life Stories with Steve Wood. And he was mm. really interesting about this. And Steve was, because uh, Steve, Steve was saying during lockdown, he was thinking about doing a show and putting it on YouTube. And, and, but then when the original figures came back from some of the early shows, he's like, well, what's the point? Because it shows that the appetite for just any boxing or small hole boxing probably wasn't there. Mm. And so I think he worked out it would be it would cost him in in boxing fees and and everything else to pay the fighters about twenty grand and obviously with no wow. TV no live gate you're not going to make a penny of that back yeah so obviously Tough. why 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 would you do that um, and so he you know and obviously if he was to then put it on YouTube and it and if it was a you know a paid thing you're still not going to get how did the channel five how did the channel five shows go it's great to see Isaac Chamberlain back who I, I know pretty well and, and have sort of done pieces with him for Sky and and for um, this podcast actually do you know how they got on were they were they numbers wise I'm, numbers wise I've got to say I'm not sure mm. but I mean in terms of in, in terms of critical acclaim they've got they've gone down really well haven't they? yeah yeah um, so. And, and they've produced some great fights and some typical boxing controversy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think everyone's done really well to get back out there. It's just a shame. Like I said, the, the small end, there's, there's really no, nothing, no change on that. And also right at the extreme end with your Joshua's and so forth. I know we had white Povetkin. Mm. Um, do you think, do you think Joshua will fight? He was, he was at white Povetkin, wasn't he? He was saying that he wants to get out there and he's not, you know, obviously he wants fans desperately, but he, he is just keen to get out there after after witnessing White Pavetkin. Well, what a shame for him if he if he loses a year of his prime. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and it, the ball's in his court, you know, because I'm sure they can pay him something, but they probably can't pay him Joshua money. Mm. So the ball's in his court, whether he wants to take that, that reduced risk. And it's the same for all these top guys, really. When you look at the top end of the sport, you either take the sacrifice and you take the financial hit of not having a crowd or and, and you get out there or you just don't fight. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that, that, that's the situation. Like, you can't, beggars can't be choosers. And if you're, you, you know. Hello, Tris. Sorry, Ed, I had an incoming call there. That's all right. Don't worry. You just, uh, that's okay. I've got mine on Do Not Disturb. It, it, it rudely interrupts it, actually. It's a shame. It's a, I think it's a glitch in the a, a technical thing in the app, which isn't great. But that's, that's fine. But you were, um, yeah, you were talking about the complications of, the finances involved, weren't you? We, we'd we'd reference. Yeah, I think it, what, what's a real shame for me is if if the people. And it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one that's going to be losing out on potentially millions. But it's a shame if these guys are going to watch their primes go from through their fingers without having the fights. Yeah. And what we, what, we what, what this what old Beckett school was... minter stuff, and you know, you couldn't imagine the guys from the old days thinking, "Oh, you know, I'm not going to get." 10 million i'm only gonna get four so i'll, I'll take a rain <laughs> well, check this year wasn't meant to fighting every six weeks or something as well even in oh, the, his the big schedule fights. was crazy and what was crazy was he was losing fights on bad cuts and then yeah. coming back a few weeks later what is the cut thing because you've got the damage book coming out next month which is about internal brain damage but what was the is there any sort of physiological conclusions about why some people's skin cut or is it just the fact that he had so many cuts that became a sort of self-fulfilling um, prophecy no i think you know there were there were lots of people saying stuff about how he's what his skin was made of and it was just one of those things really i mean some mm. people's cut and i know ricky hatton had plastic surgery in the end and there was talk of minter and different boxing news reports i read uh having to go for to to look to plastic surgeons to make sure but the thing is with minter he was cut around his eyes and on mm. his eyelids and on his forehead and around his cheeks it's the shape you of the know, eye socket is it that, is that what trainers look at and they think you're going to cut potentially or is it because it's not obviously we've all got pretty similar type skin yeah, I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't answer that. I just think you know, possibly it's to do. You know, maybe some of the guys with high cheekbones and 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 losing a lot of weight and you know losing that sort of protective glow around your eyes. But I I don't I don't know the the hard mm. and fast answer for that. Some people have obviously been historical bleeders. Look at Henry Cooper and so forth. Yeah. Um. And, and others just seem to have got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. But they, we touched on specifically, um, specifically even Daniel Dubois against Joe Joyce, who I spoke to uh, earlier in the spring for Sky Sports, actually, and that fight got moved from July, got moved to October. Now Frank Warren's saying potentially won't happen. But you talk about being your prime. Joe Joyce obviously was in a hurry as, a, as an Olympian who is in his mid-30s now and looking to, to scale the ranks. Dubois arguably has got a lot more time. He's in his early 20s, but you never know timing and, and so on and so forth. What's your reflection on Frank Warren saying that it can't happen? Because Dillian White, I think, got roughly 50% more pay-per-views than his previous fight because arguably uh, the timing and things. So would, what would you say? Would that garner a big audience in pay-per-view terms? Um, I think it would do okay, you know, but I think the problem is with that is given that that was originally due for, I want to say April. Yeah. Then I want, I think they banged out about 95% of the tickets. Mm. And so obviously they've seen what it's worth and they've had that money there, you know, obviously in, in this pot, thinking we've got that and then obviously when it comes to putting on the show now you know even with a, a small audience which wouldn't look great on tv okay. um you know when you when you start to put the same fight together but the numbers are so very different that's got to be a hard one to take for a promoter mm. have they and, have they refunded that money then or is that still 
Let's, yeah, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with that. Mm. Um, I really don't know. But um, the but you know, I, I'm think, trying to think about it from Frank's Frank Warren's perspective in the sense that you know you think that the money's there and you know what that fight's worth. So all of a sudden, you then have to bite the bullet and put it on without that kind of income. It's a really hard yeah. pill to swallow. And I think had it been a bit like this, the big fight in America, which is Tiafimo and, and Loma, mm. like if they'd sold out the MGM Grand and then had to go back and do it in an empty MGM Grand, would would it be would the promoters be so keen to put it on? I'm just not so keen, not so sure. But I think for the promoters to have seen what Dubois and Joyce was worth at the box office, and then to have that removed, I think that's got to be a really hard thing for them to try to redress. Start comparisons once it's there in, in numbers. But I suppose this is what we're all trying to adjust to, isn't it? What do we? Um, how do we determine our worth, our value in a, in a changing market with, with sort of economic depressions in there as well? And these pilot schemes, I believe, are still tentatively going to go ahead in football, although we've had the restrictions for the general public in terms of numbers of people we can gather with and, and localised lockdowns and stuff based on um, on case numbers of, of coronavirus in the country. What, what's your feel on, on, on how we sort of work out what we can do? Because I suppose there's lower level boxers who are really going to be stymied for you know, arguably another year or so by this whole effect. Yeah, it's really tough. And someone asked me the other day if, you know, fighters would have been furloughed. And I guess, well, if they've got three years of tax records, then they probably could be self-employed and furloughed. Mm. Um, I actually haven't seen of any any fighters who have been furloughed as, as boxers. Um, I just don't know it. I, I don't know where the end is in sight for all this. And, you know, people are talking about fresh lockdowns coming into winter. So we yeah. could be going backwards before we go go forwards. It's 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 a really tough situation. I mean, it's great that the ball is rolling again with televised shows, but in terms of at the other end, you know, I, I explained that situation that Steve Wood put very articulately to to me in in the podcast. Um, it's how how do you do it? Yeah. In fact, I say how do you do it? I say how do you do it? Well. I've got a story for you on that. <laughs> really? Um, I went to a drive-through cinema, my first ever. Oh, really? With my, with my other half. In uh, in, so, in where are you? You're in. Um... I'm in the New Forest. It was actually yeah. in, it was actually down towards Bournemouth. We went and saw Dirty Dancing. Uh, we had, we had an absolutely brilliant night. They bring food out to the car and all the rest of it. And I always wanted to go to a drive-in cinema, always, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it was a great experience. Anyway, the next day. I texted Eddie Hearn and said, this is the way forward. Do you want to do a driving uh, fight? <laughs> yeah. And he said, he messaged back and said uh, something along the lines of, we looked into that, but uh, the audience was all wrong. And I kind of get that because obviously you don't want any kickoffs in the car park and yeah. people driving into each other or anything else. But I think it could work. Anyway, obviously, lo and behold, Dennis Hobson's doing it, isn't he? Is he? I, I didn't believe know that. Yeah, I think he's doing a drive-in, a drive-in boxing show wow. coming up. That's very cool. I've been to drive-ins in the States, actually. They're a really, really cool experience and, and things like that. Uh, Dirty Dancing's a funny film, judging history by, because my wife loves that film. And, and she was obviously, I think she was about seven or eight when she first watched it. But I sort of said to her in the 2020 hindsight, I was like, so it's like this teenage girl who like is going out with this guy Swayze in his 30s or something and pretty much yeah, <laughs> rips yeah. her from the bosom of her family. It's a bit weird, isn't it, in retrospect? But it's interesting how we like review things in the past, going back to that, that point we talked to the top. Yeah, definitely. You're much better off with a much more savoury nostalgia in Cobra Kai. Check that out. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely, I definitely, definitely will. But that'd be great if it had um, any kind of 
imagination around it. Because what another fight I heard Anthony Yard on the Costello and Bunce podcast talking about the, the dream matchup with Boatsy. But I guess for those of us who are involved in boxing and boxing fans, that is a mouthwatering prospect. But I suppose what the promoters, Warren, Hennessy, Eddie Hearn, are trying to figure out is who crosses over at this particular time, maybe to get the general public to, to pay-per-view or, or just to watch, I suppose, is the key. Because while they're big fights to us and we're really excited by them, there'll be great debates about Boatsy versus Yard and Dubois uh, versus Joyce, doesn't necessarily resonate. As we're going back to that point about Alan Minter with the, the sort of household sports fans, general sports fans. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really tough one, isn't it? And, you know, it kind of sort of goes back a little bit to um, uh, spending time on devices. You know, I, I, I often think, you know, we, we hear how these YouTubers got criticised for getting on legit boxing bills and all the rest of it. <laughs> but there's obviously something out there that has made these YouTubers resonate with a massive audience. And that audience is out there and boxers can go and get it. And Yard does have a big audience. Mm. Um, and he's clearly done something right to get the numbers up on social media. And good, good, think, good, good physique helps, doesn't it, on the pictorial uh, social media? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure it helps me that much. But, <laughs> well, um, but how do you? But you do put pictures up because you've, you, you've earned that body. And Eddie Hearn referenced it, didn't he? In the, I think. It oh Coug- yeah, that was Coug- funny. That Coug- was funny. Coug- Coug- I, was funny enough, I was up there doing. I was up there doing interviews with Steve Wood and I think Carl Thompson that day. Mm. And I'd. Um, I'd done back-to-back interviews, so I'd been working for about four or five hours and came back and, <laughs> and my phone had just lit up. Yeah. Um, just with an, a, a casual Eddie Hearn. I think he, was, well, he did qualify because he said something about a lockdown body or I think Eddie, actually, yeah. Eddie's been working out or dieting or something and, and then he referenced you and then sort of qualified it by saying, oh, he's been doing that for 20 years in fairness. So it's not yeah. a product of two months of, uh, of weights or whatever. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a nice, but... nice compliment. But how, do you, how does that chime? We, I think we touched on it before, but the, the, the introverted disposition with particularly Instagram, because I, I rail against it or struggle with it a little bit, the concept of putting pictures of myself up. I find it difficult. How do you deal with that? But then you are promoting companies who are supporting you with the CrossFit. Yeah, so there is that side of things. And I, I don't know, I think it's a different type of introverted. You know, I'm not trying to say, like, I'm all this, I'm all that. Because no. I'm, I'm quite, I don't have the conviction in myself to be like that. Um I don't know. It's a bit of a weird one. I'd never really thought about it like that. I mean, the one thing that, that did come is when I tried to, my friend who does my um, conditioning programming and does programs, my weightlifting and so forth. I tried to program, I tried to plug his, um, uh, his, his company and he's a childhood friend of mine. Mm. I tried to plug his company on Twitter and ended up getting a load of like a really horrible weekend of abuse saying that I'm on steroids and PEDs and all really. That. And it was really, really horrible. I mean, I think there's two things to, to that, really, that really struck me. There's a lot of jealousy and, there as well. And, and it really, I really found it hurtful because there were two things. One is people are implying that I cheat to do what I'm doing when I've been working for 25 years. Yeah. And the other one is if you deny it, which obviously I would do because I've never done anything, is everyone then calls you a liar. Yeah. So you get called a cheat and then a liar and you don't win. And nice. then it just goes on loop. And it's a really, it was a really horrible weekend. It really affected me. And this is one of the reasons why I made the decision I did with, with Twitter and so forth. Off it, phone. it was horrible and really unkind. And people saying, oh, the guy's never taken a VADA test in his life. And these guys don't know. Like, I've been in half decent shape for, for nearly 30 years. Mm. And if you think I've trained 
most days for 25 years. That's more than like, it's getting on 8,000 training. Compound benefits, isn't it? That's and the thing. Like, and I don't, I don't drink much. I don't go out loads. Like it's my choice. I, I walk my dogs and I've got a, a, you know, a lovely relationship. I've got kids and all the rest of it. I don't need to go out and I don't, don't go out and get, I probably go out, you know, get drunk maybe two or three times a year max. And mm. But that's just my life. I don't, I don't but a lot of us, a lot of us feel bad, don't we? Insecure deep down. I think that comes out when someone exposes because we all have excuses of why we don't do things. So you're exposing people's psychological fragilities. I think sometimes when they think, oh, not that necessarily everyone has to work out the same way you do or develop the same type of physique. It might be they they they're sort of lean because they do lots of running or even they just do yeah. walking. They do walking or whatever. But it's a sense of like that's a demonstrable. Uh, example of productivity like you say that you put 20 years hard effort so I think people want to tear that down to, to somehow make themselves feel better even though they probably don't feel better for doing that they probably feel worse deep down yeah but there was also this right Ed. so when I was at school um, I, I'd done my Achilles tendons and I'd always been quite sporty but then I was on crutches and I put on a load of weight and I didn't know mm. anything about food or nutrition and so um, I remember hobbling around on crutches once at my school and I'd put on some chunk and I hadn't started to develop physically, physically. So I was, I had a lot of puppy fat, not loads. Cause looking back at the pictures, I didn't have loads, but mm. enough for someone to shout once across the school at me, here comes Mr. Wibbly Wobbly. Yeah. And like, obviously now like, that stayed with me, you know, I would, I would have been about 15 at the time and now I'm 41. So still, I remember that. Still sticks. Yeah. And I remember everyone else laughing and all the rest of it. And as soon as my Achilles were better, like I was going to school at Salisbury Plain, I would go out and run through the middle of the night across Salisbury Plain. So obviously no one would know, no one would see me. Mm. Um, I would then go back to my room and I would do hundreds upon hundreds of push-ups and sit-ups. Wow. And I would just do it until, until daybreak. And then I'd have a shower and then I'd avoid breakfast because obviously I didn't want to put on any weight and I thought it was all damaging and all the rest of it. And I'd just hide in my room until I had to go to school. And I did that for months and months and months and nothing happened, but wow. I kept doing it. But then when I grew and I put on about six inches in height through one summer, when my son, when my brother, my older brother went to Camp America, he came back and didn't even recognize me. <laughs> but all the training, all the running had done. Like I had a six pack, I had some, yeah. food, my shoulders had got broad and I just flipped a switch and, and changed massively. And it all changed from there. But the, the ironic thing is though, Ed, is you get bullied. Oh, I got bullied 25 years ago for being fat, and now I get bullied for being in shape. Yeah. But you used that, like, that one hurtful comment you turned into uh, 25 years of, of positivity. But you, you're now, as you say, subjective, and, and our kids are subjected to potentially an avalanche of negative comments. So it's, 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 it's almost intolerable, isn't it? You can see why people are struggling mentally. Yeah, and it is, it is tough. And like I said, you know, I'm 41 now, but to get that stuff from the weekend that I had a few weeks ago, it really affected me. Like it really, you know, it's made me delete the Twitter app and not check. And, you know, I don't block or mute anyone, you know, because I believe in free speech. People can say what they want. And I denied a few bits and everyone sort of rallied against me. And it, it was what it was. But the thing is, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because people say, oh, if you've never boxed, you shouldn't comment. Uh, you know, mm. oh, if, if you don't do what a boxer does, you shouldn't comment. Um, you know, and then everyone's got this out, you know, people in boxing get slammed for their appearance regardless. People say, Dan Raphael's too big or Gareth mm. Davies has got long, long hair <laughs> or, or whatever. You know, generally there's, everyone gets stick for something. Yeah. And whatever you are, 
you 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 tend to get stick for it. And it I brings just... out bring, Twitter brings out a childish element, doesn't it? Like you said, the playground element. It's almost literally a playground. Sometimes you see the way that people respond. It's almost like a road rage sort of reduction in in who we are. Yeah, it's 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 a really tough one, and um, like I said, because it is a valuable tool, and it's great to have, and some, and, and I'm sure that, and there are some lovely people on there, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 all the rest of it, and lo- lovely le- legit people as well, um, but unfortunately, you know, it is one of those things where for every nine positive comment, the tenth negative one will absolutely tr- write you off. Yeah, I'm I'm really lucky because again, going back to, to black friends like JD Dyer have done a podcast with Spencer Fear on who you know, and he's always said to me, look, mate, you don't really understand how bad the world can be because you're not racist and you're not exposed to people being racist to you, so you don't understand. And, th- and there was a woman actually recently, because I was just bowling through Cheltenham and I'd noticed that a hotel that's um, very visible on the pro- on the promenade in Cheltenham overlooking really nice park called Imperial Gardens was open called Hotel 131. And I was like, oh, great to see 131 out. Everyone's having drinks. You know, it feels like we're getting going again. And this woman started arguing me on Twitter saying, why aren't you promoting all the other businesses in Cheltenham? And I was like, well, I'm not. This isn't a news outlet. I'm <laughs> I'm, this is my personal Twitter account. At the end, I've blocked her. So I thought, wow, I can't deal with any sort of negativity. I was just like, I can't handle this. This woman arguing with me about this. It's just, I'm not, you know, and I realised how lucky I am. But there's different seemingly cultures between the different social media platforms, aren't there? And I don't know how that forms or comes about, but because Instagram can be very corny and, and sort of hippie and then uh, Twitter can be very vitriolic and, and sort of reactionary. Well, I think this is probably um, one of the reasons why I haven't put the podcast on YouTube yet. Um, because I got brutal stuff on YouTube from when I did BT stuff. Yeah. Um, I got, um, and, and, and Twitter, obviously, I, I gave you a little taste of what, what I've had recently. And Instagram, I don't get that. But also what I've done is I've adjusted comment settings and stuff so that not everyone can comment on my stuff. So I don't get the haphazard sort of stuff where people just want to stick the knife in yeah um they don't that you know some people aren't able to do that with the settings that i've got yeah um and that and that you know that's i think it. so it's probably, twitter it's twitter of... seems more masculine to me and instagram seems more feminine like the way my wife's friends talk to each other and sort of like sometimes it seems faux sort of emotion like oh you're lovely and i love you and he's and whereas men are sort of like ripping the mickey out of each other and that can go into sort of negative but it, there seems to be a different, almost sort of uh, gender to, to, to the sort of social media sometimes. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I just, I, I do think that, that Twitter's more hardcore, more wild west. Yeah. That's for sure. And, you know, like now, like I said, you know, in terms of deleting the Twitter app, you know, if I go online to look at what's coming or all the rest of it, I do it almost through my fingers thinking, oh, <laughs> it's more current as well, isn't it? It's more like live moment, whereas Instagram, I think people respond to it as and when, and they're sort of like, you know, less comments and things like that. It's more of a sort of reflective thing, whereas Twitter's almost like you're jumping into a river and, and sort of having a, having a scrap or trying to fish or something. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's... And I mean, hey, look, look, you know, some people also, I think with Twitter, like some people want loads of followers, like just so they yeah. have it. They want followers. They want the blue tick. Um, they want to engage people all the time. And maybe that's because, like, you know, maybe they are um, single guys who don't have that kind of lifestyle where they're not out all the time or they haven't got family. Yeah, different affirmation, and, and, yeah. Yeah, so that is their community. And that's great. Like, that's good to, for them to be part of it and all the rest of it. And, you know, maybe that will be part of their life or maybe that will be all their, their life moving forwards. Mm. That's not a knock one way or another. Everyone lives their lives differently and can live the life, live the, live the life that they want to live to a certain extent. But obviously, um, you know, I've made a conscious choice not to 
live and buy uh, live and die by by social media and specifically by twitter that's for sure yeah it's interesting people always say to me like you've been a presenter at sky for years on tv why haven't you got a blue tick and I've, i did apply for one years ago but didn't get one for whatever reason through the the screening process but it's sort of like it's, it, i can see that the the rationale of having one so people know that i'm the same person on sky sports news and working on sky but actually at the same time um i don't really want to live and die by someone sort of de- de- defining me whether i'm worthy of of some sort of uh like title of a, a blue tick title so yes yeah just, I, I, I don't get the whole blue tick thing like and, and I kind of get where you are in the public eye and all the rest of it and I kind of and I definitely understand what you're saying but it like it, you know whether you've got 2,000 followers or 10,000 followers or a million followers you're still Ed Draper yes yeah and whether you've got a blue tick or not a blue tick you're still Ed Draper yeah like, you just try you have to try and be consistent on that don't you in some form of yourself or I do at least you know yeah exactly like and and it go, goes back to this thing that I, I think Rogan said it as well you know you wouldn't say you know, you know, you try don't put anything online that you wouldn't say yourself mm. to, to to the person you're writing about. Yeah, and generally, I wouldn't write about anything anyone that I, anyone <laughs> I wouldn't write about anyone online anyway. Uh, we've had legal drills at Sky about that. It really drums it home that you know actually you are publishing. So if you if you wouldn't when you're a kid write it in a paper, don't write it on social media because it's if it's defamatory, slanderous, or you know just plain unpleasant, it's it, a representation of yourself. And sometimes people forget that they're publishing to the potentially the global audience now or whoever uses Twitter. We over exaggerate twitter i think it's only like two percent of the uk population use it regularly or something like that so so but also also it's important to know as well that you know in the spoken in sorry in the written word whether it's on social media or otherwise you sometimes don't always get people's tone mm. and obviously something written in jest might actually just go down and haunt you for the rest of your life yeah and upset you at the opposite end of extreme yeah, like, don't read exactly. too much into it when you read and, it and, and going back to, to to culture you know one of one of my worst one of the worst words for me and this might just be me being a straight old old boring <laughs> fart now is banter yeah yeah and i'm like you know oh it's only bands yeah, I, yeah. You know, some people <laughs> have really hacked me off in life and then said oh it's only bands i'm like I wouldn't go up to you, wallop you in the face, and just no. say it's only bad. You have to, you have to entrench because it's funny because my best mates, I've known since kids, we will strip each other bare, and our egos will be on the ground. But actually, you trust them with it, so it's that kind of relationship. Whereas people who don't, going back to not knowing you on social media, you have to afford that level of connection before you start, you know, ripping yeah. the Mickey out of each other to a certain extent. I think that's the difference, isn't it? People want to, people, it's aggressive if it's done without a trust. I think is the... yeah, and I, I do think you know, I'm probably just too straight for my own good. Um, in the sense that maybe I am too easily offended and, 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 and just the fact that I wouldn't go out of my way to offend anyone. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, you know, if I, if I didn't have good thoughts about someone, I'd probably just keep it to myself. Yeah. Well, people, I'm a people pleaser. I think I want people to be happy. And I think that's, um, you know, I think ultimately I don't want to offend anyone or hurt anyone. That's always constantly work with commitments. I'm always concerned about that. I'm like not overstretching myself and then flaking out. Cause I think flakiness is a, it's something that happens yeah. in, mo- in modern society as well. If you commit, people commit to things loosely on through, through devices, actually through text messages. And then you sort of think you, you, then things don't happen. If I, force myself to do that so i'm trying to limit what i can and can't do i love the t-shirts tris how's that gone down they look pretty good man yeah lucky, lucky you can model them so well as well <laughs> i thought i thought i'll take a little list of about 15 people you know who might want a t-shirt ended up nearly doing 100 wow um, i'm actually very lucky actually the guys uh, i'll give them a little plug the guys at hybrid who do like a crossfit brand um the guy who runs that company johnny 
um, we've sort of we've known each other. I've done CrossFit competitions where he's had stands and stuff, and he's always followed his boxing and sort of knew me off Sky. So when I opened Stonehenge CrossFit and, and did a competition down in Cornwall, um, he introduced himself, and we we sort of stayed in touch since. And he actually took on the job of printing them all and sending them all out for me. So Good I owe him so much because it's a it's a nightmare job. Having had a gym for three years and we used to do clothing runs and it was absolutely the bane of my existence of people <laughs> asking, oh, how does the large fit? And, the, yeah. and all the rest of it. I'm like, I'm no style guru, you know, but a large is a large is a large. They look good. You've got and, a brand as well. So is it, I guess you have to just get the quality to do the cotton that you want. You want it to be sort of nice feeling yeah, as well. But, yeah. I mean, I know, I know Johnny and the stuff that he puts out. So I, I knew what the t-shirts were going to be like. And it's, it's been great, you know, because, I can't, it's not a plug because there's no more going around, but um, <laughs> I knew that they go down very well and people ha- who have actually messaged. What were they, they buy, what, by the grey or the black or the white? Was it those three colours you did it in or? Um, no, it was, no, so just, it was just the grey with, uh, with the logo on. And um, yeah, people have said about how nice the, the sort of style and fit is, which is great, but I kind of knew they would because they're this sort of CrossFit tri-blend, which go down really well. And who did your logo, mate? Because that is the feature of the T-shirt. It... Oh mate, you know what? That's so sad. Um, so it was it was done by my my late friend Sai Ali Taha. Oh no! And Sai um, was a lovely girl. She joined my gym, and um, I'm getting a bit emotional now. Um, and she joined my gym, and I came up with this idea for the podcast, obviously, and talked to her about it. And she she was a um, a designer on the side, and I sort of had a couple of ideas in mind. I asked if she'd do it for me. Mm. and she knocked it up for me on the week that I went live and um, she did a, a fantastic job with it and Sai was a really good friend and she actually died oh, man. in a, in a um, Muay Thai fight in Southampton at the end of last year she was, actually on, she was actually mentioned in um, and with a picture on um, the, British, the BBC Sports Personality <sighs> Year Wow, award. from brain, and, uh, brain damage she died from yeah, she died. Um, they're actually in the middle of her inquest now. And uh, yeah, so really tragic to lose Cy because we've just been speaking about redesigns and sort of just bringing it up a notch and, and changing things. But now I haven't got the heart to change it because it was something that we did together. Oh, man. And, um, so sorry. Yeah, she, she was a, a, an absolutely lovely girl. And, you know, I was there in hospital with her for, for a few days um, as she sort of fought for her life. And it was all very, very tough, and uh, it really affected my my gym community and, and my part, and my my fiance, who was good friends with her as well. And she's just a lovely girl. And I, I, I sift through our memage, our our um, messages even now. You know, it was amazing, really, because the first podcast I did with Adam Booth went to number two in iTunes. Wow! And um, and it was flying. I was sending her the messages saying, "Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Look where it is!" And, yeah, like, her enthusiasm was so infectious, and. No one. I wasn't really talking to anyone else about the podcast at the time. So it was just something I was doing out of my spare bedroom. Yeah. And she was the one that I was sharing the success with and the enjoyment with, and she was so excited and so happy for me. And I go back and look, look through the messages now because it sort of it gives me another little burst each time I look at them, thinking, "Geez, you know, she absolutely had my back and was loving the journey and stuff as well." Oh, mate, I'm so sorry. That's such a tragic story, and I think that not only reiterates just the realities of fighting as well and how we do have to respect them and also the complexity of the time because fighters and are talking to people in motorsport about this are putting themselves on the line every time they get into the the cage or the the arena or the the ring and i think you know that's why it's strange for them to be sort of quashed and the livelihood struggled by or impeded by 
the, the virus that probably wouldn't cause them too much damage at the moment. So it's a, such a complex time. But I, that's a, you know, I, I appreciate you mm-hmm. just sharing that, Tris, because that's really tough to to deal with. Um, and, yeah, and it is a... no, she, did, she did. She did such a good job with that logo in such a, a constricted space of time. And uh, I can't, I can't see me changing it now. You know, to be honest. Yeah. No. I well, I don't think you should. It's a great logo, a great T-shirt. Yeah. Well, sorry to end on that on that note, Tris. Um, I've kept you for a long time. I really appreciate your time once again. And um, no uh, we'll keep in touch. I'll, I'll look forward to listening to the Nicky Piper edition of Boxing Life Stories as well. Thank you, Ed. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. You're mate. You're always great. It's always great to get your insight. Have a good day. Enjoy the rest okay, of. Okay. You too. All the best, Ed. Thank, Thank you, buddy. Bye. The marvellous Tris Dixon, really enjoyed that as ever, catching up with him, talks a lot of sense, parallels with myself, um, particularly see those close parallel lines between him and Ed Robinson, who I've worked with a lot at Sky Sports, fine reporter, uh, presenter, and now producer. And uh, in that podcast with Tris, Boxing Life Stories edition, he definitely uh, talks about how that suits his his aptitude. And it's interesting to riff about the particular areas that we went into in journalism with Tris there and, and what you enjoy and don't enjoy. And I particularly enjoy the process of being on live television like I, I kind of feel centered and in a sense it allows my mind to focus a bit like sport in a weird sort of way so I enjoy that side of it but I totally recognize that for a lot of people it's it's not attractive I think it is um the nature nurture debate is is twofold I think it's usually both isn't it there's an aptitude there that you potentially have that you lean into that you enjoy but you do need to put the reps in those 10,000 hours as Malcolm Gladwell wrote. I hope you enjoyed that as well. I hope we're balanced in our reflections on Alan Minter. As two white blokes, um, it's difficult. And I think my eyes have been opened. It's been a really illuminating and and saddening time, actually, in terms of speaking to black friends and colleagues, people I've known for years and revealing the kind of messages they get on social media, but also the in-person stuff they've had to deal with growing up in the UK or, or other parts of the world. And as someone who my first best friends were black in the West Indies and never experienced any racism there from from the uh, islanders when we were there as my dad was a doctor on a tiny island in grand turk in the west indies seven miles long one mile wide and had a wonderful school mrs newman's school shack on a hill basically but i came back two years ahead of the kids my same age and i think it's difficult reflecting the, the sort of hurt that th- comments like alaminta would have would have caused and the sort of emotions it stoked up in terms of um the white majority in the uk in terms of um the experience of people who who weren't white in the UK. So I hope we were balanced in that, but the kind of general feeling of whatever your skin color is, how much melanin you have in your skin, the idea that we can have redemption and get better and make mistakes. I think sometimes with the intensity and ferocity of social media, we forget that we do change and evolve. And I'm sure your views are different than they were a few years ago. And hopefully that was the case with Alan Minter. And it was one phrase maybe he said was taken out of context. But nonetheless, I hope you felt that was balanced. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you could rate it on iTunes, wonderful. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. If you do get in touch with them, tell them that you listen to it on the podcast. Uh, Jason and his team, they appreciate that. And cytoplan.co.uk with uh, autumn, winter upon us, and those kind of seasonal coughs, colds, little ailments that we get. If you're looking to sort of boost your immunity and your families, cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, and Draper 10, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, then the number's one zero, and you'll get 10% off with them. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Appreciate it. Got a good one coming up next week that I'll release probably Monday. Ben Markle, former Cheltenham Town player, 
a youth player, went to Stoke City in the Premier League and his life kind of uh, unraveled at that point in his, in his youth. He's still only 24, um, but making his way, trying to help other youngsters now because he had a gambling addiction problem and uh, just got completely lost in the in the game. And it's uh, an interesting, really interesting interview and I hope uh, you can tune into that next week. But thank you for listening to this one. Appreciate it, guys. I'm Ed Draper 81 on Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram. If you want to reach out and say that you've enjoyed the podcast, I appreciate any feedback, good or bad, at least if it's constructive. Have a great weekend and I hope the sun shines where you are. And if not, don't worry, take a raincoat, get out anyway. Enjoy, enjoy Mother Nature. Bye for now.